deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I've kept your testimonies. Even though princes sent plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Those are verses 17 to 24 of Psalm 119, the first 24 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, August the 25th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. I wish that I could honestly say those words that I just read to you. But the reality is, is that, that most of the time I'm consumed with other thoughts and other things. And, and David, hopefully, <laughs> did think that. At least when he was a shepherd, he would probably have had plenty of time to do that, and his mind would have been consumed with the thoughts of God. It got probably pulled away whenever he began uh, to serve as the king, certainly after he was anointed and was on the run from Saul. But, but those things should be true. And so when we read those things, we, we, I guess we would call those aspirational values. In other words, we wish those things were true. Um, but we need to move beyond aspirational values to, to making at least some of that actual values. If we're ever to actualize those things in our lives, we have to make a beginning. And so that's my theme for today is making a beginning. Because that's the important thing we need to do. We need to set a course, and we need to, to determine and, and for once and for all, <laughs> that's the course we're going to pursue. And if we do that, then then we'll see these things become true in our own lives. Um, for instance, ben, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin had a list of things that he considered virtues that he wanted to cultivate in his life. And he would make a list of those things at the first of every year, sort of like a New Year's resolution, but, but he intended to... Uh, actually evaluate himself on those things on a regular basis and so he, he, it was a it was a tick mark thing sort of like an old accounting paper and he would he would kind of check himself from time to time at, and see how he was doing on those things actually honestly measure that as as honestly as anybody can measure their own progress in things like that so uh, anyway I, I think it would be good for us if we if we said okay well, these are the virtues that that I I really believe would be helpful to me in the next year whether that's reading your Bible spending more time in praying setting a definite time to be with the Lord all those things if we make a start of it then we might actually make a go of it and then those things will begin to be part of our lives, and they begin to change our lives, and they begin now to desire more and more. And so that, that's my uh, theme for today, and my, my injunction for today is make a beginning. Determine what you need to do, and then make a beginning of that and stick to it. It's not easy to do, not, not pretending that it is, but it's the most important we can do, it, thing we can do is build a habit, because then it, that habit ultimately becomes a character-defining thing. So anyway, it, in Solomon's, beginning of Solomon's career as the king is where we are today. We're in 1 Kings 3, 1 to 15. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Tom, uh, Solomon was a great builder of Jerusalem. He's the one who secured the city as well as built the first temple. 
The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So worship tended to happen on the high places. They thought those places were closest to God because they were closest to the heavens. And it says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And that can be, the way that reads can, can actually point you in the direction of that that might not have been um, worshiping Yahweh. Those high places, uh, along the way in Israel's history, what you'll see is they began to sacrifice and do things at high places. Well, that's what the the pagans did. And so it, it's frequently uh, in, in Israelite history, when you see things about the high places, what you, what you should read into that is, is that that's, those are pagan offerings. They're not offering them to Yahweh. So <clears throat> here, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, What shall I give you? And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. You've kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you've given him a son to sit on his throne this day. Now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David, my father, though I'm but a little child. He, he wasn't. He, he was young, but he was not a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. I mean, he's confessing in humility who he is and what he is, and he's in the presence of the living God. We would all have to acknowledge these very things. Your servants in the midst of your people, whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. And give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people? That the understanding mind to discern the difference between good and evil, that's exactly what Adam and Eve should have said. This is what they needed. It's what we all need. We all need to learn and to the, the understanding to have discernment between good and evil. And that's something that I think that we need as Christians to be better at, actually. We need to be able to discern the times. We need to understand what's going on around us and figure out good and evil in all things because we're, we're prone to make misjudgments. I mean, a lot of people make pronouncements, but you're going to be on the wrong side of history. Well, you know, you don't know that. The only people who can know that are the people to whom the Lord's revealed <laughs> the end of history, and, and we know what the end of history is because he's revealed it in the book of the Revelation. And he revealed it through Jesus. And we know the principle of entropy is true. Things tend to devolve to the worst, not improve for the best. And so but Solomon asked for the right thing. He, if I'm going to be judge among these people, if I'm going to lead these people, then what I need is your spirit to tell me and help me discern good and evil, to help me see the truth in all things. This is essentially what he's asking for here. And it pleased the Lord so much that, that he gave him the things that he didn't ask for. Long life, riches life of his enemies. He says, because you did that, that shows you already have wisdom. It shows that, that you have a wise and discerning mind, that, that your humility is proper. And so I'll give you that and everything else with it. And so Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So he's celebrating the peace that he's at with God based on the dream that he's had and the word of the Lord that comes to him there, but he's doing it in Jerusalem. 
He's doing it in the right place. He left Gibeah in the high place of high places and came back to Jerusalem to do that. He made a good beginning. And that's what we need to do. We need to make that good beginning. And that good beginning is to say, Lord, before I do anything today, help me to have discerning and wise mind and eyes that I might see things properly, that I might hear things properly, and that I might understand things properly, and that I might then react to things properly. But it begins with His Spirit. It begins with asking every day for a renewal and a refreshing of the Spirit within us that we might see through the, the facade and all the haze and see the truth behind all things. In the, in the Gospel today, Mark 14, 1-11, we're told it was two days before the Passover. The countdown is, is moving on. Two more days. And we know, because we know, 2,000 years later what happens. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. We've got to keep this under the radar. And while he was at Bethany, outside the city, out where um, Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, he was in the house of Simon the leper. And as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. The reality is here, this woman was probably a prostitute, and that, that nard would have hung around her neck between her breasts, and that would have, that the scent of that coming through the, the flask that it was in would have been alluring to men. It, it would have caused people to look, men to look at her. And it, pure nard would be incredibly expensive because it comes from the top of the Himalayas. And so it had to come a long way, and it comes from one specific flower that's up in the Himalayas. So it's, it's a long import process to get it there, so it's very costly. But it would have been her means of making a living. It would have been what made her attractive to men, <clears throat> beyond her looks, I mean. And, and there, were, there were some, that, and she pours that over his head. She's anointing him, essentially, for burial, because nard is also used as a burial spice. <clears throat> to, to keep down the smell of a dead body. <clears throat> there, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. In the other Gospels, we're told that, that Judas is actually the person who, who does that because he's mostly concerned about the money because he was the one who held the money bag. And they scolded her. Wow. Wow. Really? That was your concern, was the poor? What other Gospels tell us is, no, he was stealing. <laughs> and so it would have been helpful for him to have plenty of money, which would have, because his 300 denarii would be 300 days' worth of wages for the ordinary worker at the time. Jesus, though, says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you've always the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you, can't, you will not always have me. Same thing he was telling to them when, when the Pharisees came to him and said, well, look, the Pharisees are fasting and John's disciples are fasting. Why aren't your people fasting? And, and his response was, this is the bridegroom is here. You don't fast when the bridegroom is here. And he's given the same basic answer here. And we're coming close. We're coming two days from that. You will not always have me. And what a uh, horrible blow that would be to hear that. I mean, you'd know it. If you, if, if you were one of his disciples and you thought he was a man, and just a man, then, then you would hear that and it would be painful to you. But, but even more so here at this point, because it does look like an anointing for burial like that. She's done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And, true, and they were not able, remember, to anoint him before his burial because it happened that it happened at the time when the Sabbath was beginning, and so they had to wait until Sunday morning to do that. And so now she's done this 
ahead of time. And truly, I say to you, whatever the, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Amazing, absolutely amazing that this woman, whose name we don't know, it is remembered forever for what she did for Jesus. And, and, and that's our injunction too, right, is, is to do what we can for Jesus in order that that would be our memory. I read a, um, a couple of obituaries this week that, that my brother David sent to me, and, and it was like, holy moly, that's what these people wanted to be remembered for? That's how they wanted to be remembered? That, that It's actually sad because your, your life amounted to very, very little at the end of the day. And it doesn't have to be in my obituary that he did things for God or he attempted great things for God. It just has to be true. <laughs> and that's what we need to keep in mind. We need to keep that end in mind always. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to him. And then when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So you can read in that who it would have been that would have cared about the money in that way. And so we know Judas's memory is the betrayal of Jesus. This woman's is that she anointed him for burial. She did a beautiful thing. She gave away her past and her future in giving away that nard. It, it, she no longer had the allure that she had before. It, it's a sign that she's giving up her former way of life. So in, in the Acts passage, remember, they Paul has been tried before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and all that, and then they sent him to Rome. And so, so um, Luke is now going to tell us exactly what happens going on from there. So they're leaving, and way too much time has gone on. Now it's winter. It's not a good time to sail and try and get to, to Rome. But they decided to do it. And Paul says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Well, who could blame him? I mean, Paul's a tent maker. And he's the one saying this, thing, hey, I got a word from the Lord thing. And, and the centurion is like, well, I don't know what that means. But then, so they started and they move on and they do indeed run into all kinds of problems. First, of all, it, it seemed to be nice. The wind blew, south wind blew gently, but then they, so they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So they're weighing the anchor. They're dropping it into the sea so that they don't get drifted away and, and they have more control over where they're going. So they're close to the shore. And then a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. So they'd been following a southerly wind and now this nor'easter comes and the ship was caught and couldn't face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. And then he tells about all the difficulties that they have along the way. They had a hard time securing the ship's boat, which would have been the, 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 like if you were going to go to shore, you would drop that essentially lifeboat down, put it in, and, and they could row to the shore from there. And they needed that in order to get to the shore. So, so they had a difficulty, he says, get, securing the ship's boat. And then they got it up, and then they used supports to undergird the ship. Fearing they'd run aground, they lowered the gear, and they were driven along. And then it, it, this continues, and so now they throw out the cargo, and then they throw the ship's tackle overboard. And then, it, then neither the sun or the stars appeared for many days, I mean, horrible days. And no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And since they'd been without food a long time, though, Paul stands up and says, You should have listened to me <laughs> and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I mean, if he, if he stops there, he's just this obnoxious guy, right? But then he goes on to say, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So we're going to lose the ship, but we're all going to live. Well, the, the captain probably is not even happy about that, because he's going to lose, he's already lost his cargo and the tackle, and now he's going to lose this ship, and it's probably not his. 
he says, Paul says, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Don't be, and he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island, which is exactly what does indeed happen. And I wonder how the men sort of received Paul's word that, that oh, it's going to be okay. We're going to lose the ship. We're going to lose, you know, all this stuff. But, but nobody's life is going to be lost. Well, huh. Okay, I mean, these guys are working hard. They're trying to do all this stuff. And, and now, can they hear the word from Paul? And can they believe it? And I think we're going to see the answer in a little bit it is not really. They, they didn't care. Most of those men didn't care about the lives of those who were on board that ship. Paul particularly, because he's a prisoner. So he, the, the, the issue is, is that he's made, Paul's made a good beginning, and now he's going to make a good ending. And he's praying for the people on board that ship. And so it's, it's, it's important for us to make a good beginning in order that we can make a good ending. Because making that good beginning is just the start. And then we're intended to grow more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. But we're also called to fall deeper and deeper in love with him. And we're supposed to, our desires are to change. And our desires are to change to, to know him more and to be more like him. Those are the two main goals of our lives. To glorify him is the goal of our life, but the only way we can do that is to know more about him, that we might become more and more like him, and that we would want to be more and more like him. That's the beginning that we need to make, It is to see that desire in us for more of him and less of us, just as John the Baptist did. So, so I encourage you today to go before the Lord and to say to him, I really want more of you. It tells him how much you love his son and how much you believe in his goodness and his greatness. But this day, ask him to show you how to discern between good and evil and to give more of, your, more of his spirit that you might become more and more clear on how to navigate this life.